right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm flying solo today, no interview for you, uh, but I want to talk today about the holy angels and devotion to the holy angels. Maybe you'd bring up some things that you didn't know about the angels or just remind you of some things that are important to know. I've been reading a few books recently that have inspired me to cultivate a healthier devotion to the, the holy angels. And I, I think it totally makes sense when you think about it, right? If God made these creatures, and we'll, and we'll get into all the sort of metaphysics of this, but if God made these creatures that are all around us, even though we can't see them, and that these creatures exist to worship God and to do his bidding, and not only that, but we each have guardian angels that help us, that protect us spiritually and sometimes materially, protect us spiritually and guide us to Jesus Christ, why not cultivate a devotion to them? Because these guys can be our friends who can lead us to the throne of God. What a powerful thing to, to think about. So I want to just talk about a few ideas about the holy angels, talk about what scripture says, what some of the doctors of the church have said, especially the angelic doctor, Thomas Aquinas, who, by the way, is named that because he did a lot of work on the holy angels. Uh, and he was rather angelic himself, but uh, primarily because of his work on the holy angels, he's called the angelic doctor. So I want to talk about a little bit of that today. I've got some notes here that we can go through. So the first thing, what does our faith say about angels? I mean, we talk about them sometimes, Oftentimes, when we think of angels, we think of the little, you know, the little precious moments cherubim uh, that are in the Hallmark store, right? And it's this very sort of misleading depiction of angels because when we see angels appear in Scripture to people, when we see apparitions of angels, appearances, uh, people are terrified, which is exactly why, for example, when Gabriel appears to Mary at the Annunciation, he has to say, don't be afraid, right? And that's, that's a common theme when angels appear to, to mere mortals in Scripture, it's don't be afraid. Now, if angels looked like those little, uh, those little precious moments uh, cherubs in the Hallmark stores, uh, no one would be afraid at all, right? But, but rather, I think angels are in some ways a reflection when they appear, certainly a reflection of God's awesome power and grandeur and majesty. And so, um, so they can be scary, right? When, when we, as again, mere mortals encounter that, that can be a pretty scary thing. So we often, sort of, we often sort of remember that they exist, but I think sometimes we don't have a good appreciation for what those angels are like. Um, let alone look like, okay? And so we'll talk about that. But first, I want to point you to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, section 328. Section 328 says, the existence of the spiritual non-corporeal beings that sacred scripture usually calls angels is a truth of faith. The witness of scripture is as clear as the unanimity of tradition. And section 329, with their whole beings, the angels are servants and messengers of God. And section 331, Christ is the center of the angelic world. They are his angels. So let's pause there just for a minute. I want to talk about that specifically because the fact that Christ is the center of the angelic world means that, again, as we read in section 329, with their whole beings, the angels are serving him and doing his bidding, right? And if that's also the case, that Christ is at the center, then any devotion to the angels will necessarily lead you to Christ. Because if their whole beings are spent serving and serving God and serving Christ and being his messenger, then if you have a devotion to the angels, of course, you're going to help be led even closer to Jesus Christ himself. So with that as sort of the backdrop, let's, let's go into more about who or, or what the angels are. Now, I say who or what. It is actually more appropriate to say who are the angels. Because the angels are persons. They are, they are persons themselves. They are personal beings. Now, they are creatures, just like we are, uh, but they are persons. That doesn't mean they're human beings. It means they, they have persons, or they, or they are persons. They are, however, pure spirit, 
So there is no matter associated with them. They can appear, and obviously they do in scripture, uh, but that is in an apparition, right, where they sort of take on the material qualities for a temporary time so that they can appear to people who are uh, who are composed of, uh, not, not primarily, but composed of matter, like us. Um, so they are pure spirit, but they also possess intellect and will, right? So we are not pure spirit. We are spirit and body. Angels are pure spirit, but they still, like us, possess intellect and will. So they can think um, and they can will to do things. Uh, but because they are pure spirit, they don't have bodies, obviously. So they don't have the five senses that we have, taste, touch, smell, etc., which means also that they have no passions, right? So our passions come from our taste primarily, right? You might be, uh, might, might be really into food. I love food, love food. Uh, and I love food because I have taste, right? Um, and so all of our tastes are good things, are things that God has created and given us to enjoy the material world that he has gifted us with. Uh, but angels don't have those things. And so angels are also not, uh, not victim to the same passions of the flesh that, that human beings are. Now, we are in a, bio, a biosphere, right? We live on earth. We inhabit this creation. The angels are not, right? So the angels can interact with this creation. The angels can interact with the material world, but they themselves are not material beings. They don't inhabit the same stuff, the same material stuff that we do, properly speaking. Um, also, this is interesting, each angel is of its own species. It is uniquely created by God. So there are categories of angels, or what we call choirs of angels, and we'll talk We'll talk about that in, in just a sec. But each angel is created by God uniquely, or at least that has been the teaching of the church. We call the angels substantial creatures because each angel exists of and by himself, right? So they are, they are not simply a personification of God's power in the world. They are actually individual persons, unique in species, one from another. Uh, and, but like us, of course, because they're creatures, they're contingent on God, right? So when I say contingent on God, I mean that everything I do and not just do, but everything I am, right? My, my very being is contingent on God saying that it be so, right? So when God in the creation account in the book of Genesis says, let there be light, that light is contingent on God. God is creating that light. And as that, that light's creator, that light is dependent and contingent on God for its very existence in the same way we are, right? So if God were to decree tomorrow that I no longer exist, then I would, in fact, cease to exist. That's what it means to be a contingent being. Um, and, and it's not just my existence, but every, every action of mine, right? If God does not allow me to take an action, then I cannot take that action. That's what it means to be a contingent being. Uh, angels are the same way. Because they are creatures, right? They are fully contingent on God. So where do we see angels appear in Scripture? Lots of places, but here's a few. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, Eden, um, <clears throat> Uh, when, uh, especially, especially when they uh, are set up by God to guard the garden from Adam, Adam and Eve re-entering. We see them visiting Abraham in what, what we might call a sort of proto-annunciation, a sort of type or a, a prefigure of the, uh, of the annunciation later on. So in visiting Abraham, they tell Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a son, right? And that's why I say it's, it's sort of a, a small picture of what's to come later in the annunciation uh, to Mary. So they visit Abraham there. Uh, the angels stay Abraham's hand against Isaac when Isaac is instructed, when Abraham is instructed to uh, sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Angels save Hagar and her child. They lead the people of Israel uh, during the Exodus to the promised land. Um, they appear to Joseph in a dream in Matthew's, Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Uh, obviously, Gabriel announces the incarnation to Mary in Luke chapter 1. 
uh, and the angels minister to Jesus in the desert in Luke chapter 4, in Matthew chapter 4, when, or maybe it's Luke chapter 3 actually, uh, when Jesus goes out into the desert for 40 days and faces all these trials and temptations, we are told by scripture that the angels are ministering to him in the desert while he's there. And the angels, of course, proclaim Christ's resurrection at the empty tomb uh, in John chapter 20. So just a few examples of where angels appear, but of course they are, they are scattered throughout the witness of Scripture, uh, and, and we can be confident of their existence because Scripture is unanimous on the existence of the holy angels. So there are some, several questions here, right? So how can an angel who doesn't have a body, who doesn't, have, uh, doesn't possess any material, who isn't made of matter, who doesn't reside in the same earth that we do, how can they be considered to be in a place, right? If we say there's an angel in the room with us, well, you know, what can we mean by that? Um, Thomas Aquinas engages with this question, actually, and he says there are two ways that something can be considered to be in a place. One is to be contained in a place, like the sofa in the living room, or like the fireplace behind me, or the chair that I'm sitting on, right? Those things are contained in a place. But there's also the way that a thing can be in a place by influencing that place, right? So in the same way that your boss at work can make his or her presence known by the rules that they lay down, right? They, the rules that they set for the office to say, this is how it has to be, you have to show up at this time, et cetera. Um, that boss is sort of making their presence known. They're being in that place, uh, despite the fact that they might be off, uh, taking a day off of work, et cetera, right? So the boss is still, still sort of in the place by virtue of the fact that they are influencing the place. So in the same way, angels can influence the world around us, despite the fact that we, we can't really properly speak of them as being contained by a place because they are not matter, right? Only matter can be contained within matter. So how do angels influence the, the, the persons, right? How do angels influence us? Well, um, there are a number of ways, right? But uh, they can illuminate the human mind. They can help us um, think more clearly. They can help us use our reason and our intellect. They can help us, uh, by so doing, to strengthen our faith. Um, they are present with us at Mass. In fact, we are told that uh, angels are always surrounding the throne of God. And there are these beautiful images from the book of Revelation uh, at the very end of Scripture where we, where we hear about choirs of angels who are just standing around the throne of the Lamb and singing praise and giving praise to the Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ. Um, and so it's a beautiful image to think about that happening at Mass as well. I mean, uh, Scott Hahn has a great book called The Lamb's Supper where he explains or explores a lot of the imagery, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the ways in which our mass, every single mass that's offered here on earth, is a prefigurement, is a type, is an anticipation of the final Lamb Supper that we see described to us in detail in Revelation. And the angels surrounding the throne are, are, key, um, are key parts of that. And so it's beautiful to think about in mass how there are angels permeating, uh, our, permeating our, our space Worshiping the throne of God. I, I like to picture, uh, especially when we sing the Sanctus, Holy, 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 Lord God, all, Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. I love picturing the angels surrounding the tabernacle um, and bowing down with us and singing that same song of praise. So that's another way that they, 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 can, they can influence us. They can also help us to enter more profoundly into prayer. So it might be a good idea to just ask the holy angels to help you focus, to tune out distractions when you're trying to sit down and offer, offer prayer to God. Are there different kinds of angels? Yes, we already talked about how, in, in one sense, all the angels are a unique species, so they're all a different kind. We can also talk about categories of angels or choirs of angels, and Scripture bears witness to these as well, um, with sort of greater and lesser support depending on, the, uh, depending on the choir. But Scripture tells us about seraphim, cherubim, and thrones, dominions, virtues, powers, principalities, 
archangels and angels. And those are in order from greatest to least. So right when we talk about archangels, we think Michael, Gabriel, Raphael. We think the greatest of all the angels. Actually, no. Uh, according to the church's teaching, uh, and Thomas Aquinas specifically wrote about this, as did uh, Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, who wrote a book called On the Celestial Hierarchy, all about this exact thing. Uh, according to uh, learned men like that and the teaching of the church, um, that is not the case. Right? The archangels are actually the second bottom tier of angels. And so Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, they have really important jobs. But if you think about it, what is more important than leading the Lord's armies, right? What is the most important thing that a creature can do? It's to worship. And so the roles of these, and we see this in the book of Revelation, the roles of these other angels, seraphim, cherubim, thrones, dominions, virtues, powers, um, two of uh, dominions and powers we read about in uh, Colossians along with principalities, uh, virtues we read about in 1 Peter 3, and then seraphim are in Isaiah chapter 6, cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 10, and thrones, uh, again, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, so we read about them in, and in the book of Revelation, and they're bowing down and they're worshiping Jesus Christ at the center. That's the most important thing that a creature can do is to worship the Creator. So it makes sense, right? There are all these choirs of angels, and most of them are surrounding the throne of Jesus Christ, uh, giving him worship. So archangels and angels are at the very bottom, and, uh, and those angels are uh, the guardian angels, right? Um, perhaps not all of them. I mean, there's no way to know, but the guardian angels um, has been the, the, the teaching of the church that guardian angels are of the lowest choir, the angels, right? So angels, archangels, principalities, powers, virtues, dominions, thrones, cherubim, and at the very top, seraphim. Okay. All right. Now, um, let's talk about the fallen angels, right? And I think this is a really important one, and we don't need to dive too deep into it, but fallen angels are an important thing to recognize too because... They are always warring against the soul, right? In the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel, we pray, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, a prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Those evil spirits are the fallen angels, right? And they, they, are, they are actually rooting for our downfall, for our demise, and for our destruction. They are agents of chaos, right, in the true sense of the word. Benedict XVI has this wonderful description of Satan as an unperson. And his point is that Satan is, by definition, chaos. He is the accuser. He is the father of lies. The, those last two titles come, from, come directly from Scripture. And so Satan is about sowing unreality in the midst of reality. Satan is about making us see the world not as it is, but as he wants us to see it. Satan is not about uh, an integrated personhood. Satan wants us to think the body is bad, the soul is good perhaps. Satan wants us to um, have this Gnostic dualism with the way we approach the world. Satan wants us to not have integrated lives and not have integrated um, an integrated understanding of ourselves or an integrated understanding of God. And his fallen angels are exactly the same way. right? So, Scripture is pretty quiet on the fall of the angels. There are a few passages, right? Jesus, for example, tells us that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But based on the teaching of the church and based on the witness of Scripture, we can say with some level of confidence some things about the fallen angels. The first is that all angels were originally created in a state of grace. Now, why do we say that? Because God is all good, right? So God makes all things good and uh, angels are created in a state of grace. This falls into the category of what the church calls probable doctrine, right? So this is not, um, you're not a bad Catholic necessarily if you have good reasons for, uh, for objecting to this idea. 
um, and you explain why, right? So this is not dogmatic, but it's probable doctrine. And, and, and in other words, you should believe it if you, have, if you don't have good reason to not believe it. Um, so this is why Jesus says that he saw Satan fall, right? That would be a reference to the fall of Satan. But that fall was caused probably um, by an exercise of angelic will that rebelled against God with pride and envy. In other words, some angels, I talked about the, you know, the primary role of the angels is to worship God, right? And that's in fact the highest calling of not just the angels, but of every creature. So the highest calling of them all is to worship God. And some angels didn't want to do that. They didn't want to give to God the place that is proper to themselves. So this is why Satan's very first act in influencing man in the Garden of Eden is to teach or to tempt Adam and Eve with the thought that they could be like God. Right, so Satan's whole desire is to be like God, and he passes that desire on to people, to Adam and Eve, and he says, you're not going to die if you eat of this stuff. You're just going to be like God. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a great thought? Knowing good from evil. But this is also why we see the chief of the Lord's armies, Michael, uh, the Hebrew name is Mikael, and that means who is like God. Right, so where Satan could not swallow, Satan's pride would not let him swallow this truth that God is God and he is not. Satan wanted to appropriate the powers of God for himself. Michael, like the good angels, says, who is like God, right? And he is able to serve God with his entire being because of, because of that. Um, so that's pretty cool. You know, I also, I also found this interesting, and this was before I was Catholic. I was reading a book uh, called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis that you may be familiar with. And in that, C.S. Lewis, um, he, he takes on the, uh, he writes in the voice of an uncle, Uncle Screwtape, writing to his nephew, Wor Worm, Worm Tongue, or Wormwood, I think. Um, and, uh, and the uncle demon is giving all this advice to the nephew demon about how to tempt people. And, and it's a really insightful book because it helps us see how often we fall into the same traps that Screwtape encourages his nephew to lay for his, um, his uh, subject, uh, if you will, or his assignment, I guess. Each, each of the demons, you know, kind of like a guardian angel, each of the demons is assigned a person to personally tempt and try to draw to sin. But anyway, C.S. Lewis makes this wonderful point that Michael is not, or, or that, that God is not the opposite of Satan. Satan's not the opposite of God, right? Because that would imply that Satan is somehow omnipotent, but in the opposite direction, right? Uh, which is a logical absurdity, because if God is omnipotent, that would exclude anyone else being omnipotent, right? Because one figure's omnipotence would necessarily preclude the omnipotence of any other person, right? Because if, if one person was omnipotent uh, and could do anything that he wanted, that would mean that this person who was also claimed to be omnipotent would not have the power to override this one's omnipotence, right? So it's a logical absurdity to think that Satan's actually the opposite of God. And what C.S. Lewis pointed out is actually Satan's the opposite of Michael, right? Michael is the one who says who is like God. My Michael's the one who heads up the Lord's armies. Satan's the one who could not stomach the fact that he was not like God, who now has his own army that's prowling about the world seeking the ruin of souls. And so we have Michael and, and Satan going head to head like this. But Satan is not the opposite of God. So that's another important, important thing to think about. It's not God versus the devil per se, right? Uh, in, in the sense that they're not two sort of rival beings. Um, this is not a, a yin-yang of Eastern theology. This is not a, a cosmic um, battle of two equally arrayed forces of light and darkness. This is God who is omnipotent, who by um, his, by his uh, perfect will allows angels to fall, and those angels being in constant warfare with the good angels who are always intent on serving God. So I'll wrap this up here, but I, I want to leave you with a couple concluding thoughts, right? Why does all this matter, first and foremost? Why do we care about the angels? 
And I think on the first level of things, it matters because contemplating these heavenly beings is so important, right? We often fall into this trap as human beings of just looking at the world around us and thinking, wow, this is really nice, like great sky, great trees, beautiful mountains, wonderful scenery, I love the beach, et cetera. This smell is really great. We, you sort of, we get caught up in our, in, our, um, in our senses, our five senses, right? And those are all really good things to do to appreciate the world that God has given us. But it's also important to remember that there is a reality beyond which we can beyond that which we can apprehend, right? So we can use our five senses to discern the world around us. We cannot use our five senses to know about the rest of the things that God has created, right? And, and God's creation indeed can transcend our five senses, believe it or not. And so just understanding that there is this whole angelic universe out there that is filled with creatures whose only will is to serve and to love God and to do his bidding, that's a pretty powerful thing to think about. And it also helps me feel like We've got people on our side, right? We've got creatures on our side, the holy angels who are always fighting for us, always advocating for us, um, protecting us against those forces that are prowling about the world uh, and are joining us in worshiping God. So that, that's wonderful. I think on the second point, I would say that we need to nurture our spirit of faith against the spirit of the age. You know, uh, Dr. Larry Chapp, who's a friend of mine, has been on the podcast several times, he said very pithily in the first interview I did with him, ours is not an age of faith. And this is something that, that Benedict XVI talked about at length as well. Uh, even John Paul II, I mean, many, many great Catholic theologians and scholars, even in the past century, and especially in the past century, I would say. Ours is not an age of faith, right? So our faith and our reason tell us that the angels are real, that the angels are ministering to us, that the demons are real, that the demons are tempting us, our modern age tells us that that's just hocus pocus, right? That of course that's not real, but, but no, it is. And I think finally, the third thing I would say is that we have guardian angels. It's something I didn't talk about a whole lot, but the, the teaching of the church, uh, and this is, this is building off of the words of, of Christ in scripture when he said um, they're angels, right? Referring to the angels of people. Uh, the teaching of the church is that we all have a guardian angel that is uniquely assigned to us. Um, to help us get to heaven, essentially, to protect us primarily against spiritual threats, but perhaps also against physical, material threats, right? But we all have a guardian angel who is there constantly by our side, again, perhaps not in the physical sense that we talk about, you know, a, a, something being in a place, right? But is there by our side, influencing us, helping our internal life, helping our prayer life, helping us approach Jesus. Um, and if we remember that, that's great, right? Imagine if you're an athlete, Right? And you say, I really want to go to the Olympics. I'm going to do whatever, whatever I can to, to get to the Olympics because I, I really, really want to go. Right? If you're an athlete and you are assigned a personal coach and chef who will give you all the food that you need to get there, who will give you all the training you need to get there, you'd be a fool to not take advantage of that coach. Right? Well, think of the guardian angel as our coach. Uh, and you've been assigned a guardian angel to help you get to heaven. Right? And if you really want to get to heaven, rely on that guardian angel. Like, you know... Pray to that guardian angel to help you focus your prayer time. Pray to that guardian angel to help you calm your temper down uh, when you're feeling your temper rising and you're, you're, you're getting tempted to sin. I mean, this is a great resource that we have, that the church teaches we each have a guardian angel. So, um, so get to know your guardian angel. Now, I say get to know. I mean, what I really mean is cultivate a devotion to. Uh, I don't mean ask the name of, right? We do not own the guardian angels. We are not their creator. They are not, uh, they are not subordinate to us, right? They are subordinate to God. Uh, and they are there to help us. But you cannot, for example, ask the guardian angel what his name is, right? That is, a, that is an improper thing to do because to name something uh, is to exercise dominion over it, right? And you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't 
Uh, also, name your guardian angel again because of the same thing. You can't exercise dominion over it. That's something that Adam and Eve did in the garden with animals because God told them to and because we exercise dominion over the earth, but we do not exercise dominion over the realm of angels, and so you can't do that. But I, I do encourage you to cultivate a devotion to your guardian angel, to pray to them. I mean, it could be something as simple as every day and every night, right? Ask them to assist you, to draw you closer to Jesus Christ. It could be a habit that you have every time you enter a church, right? To walk in and pray, um, pray to your guardian angel and say, pray the Sanctus with me and, and pray the Sanctus as soon as you walk into the church and kneel down in front of the tabernacle, right? So simple things like that, but think of them as, as your guardian angel, I mean, as your coach, right? To get you to heaven. So how can we live this out, right? I, I talked about some of those things um, and I love the idea of doing the, uh, doing the prayer, the holy, the sanctus, as soon as you walk into a church with your angel. But I will close this episode with a, an Eastern Catholic prayer from St. Peter the Studite. And it goes like this. O guardian angel, protector of my soul and body, to your care I have been entrusted by Christ. Obtain for me the forgiveness of sins I have committed today. Protect me from the snares of the enemy, that I may never again offend God by sin. Pray for me, your sinful and unworthy servant, that through your help I may become worthy of the grace and mercy of the Most Holy Trinity and of the Immaculate Mother of our Lord God, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'll put that, that prayer in the show notes. I also think the you know, angel of God, my guardian dear prayer that you may, have, you may have heard before or you may have prayed, you may pray regularly. That's a great one, especially to teach kids because it's, it's pithy, it's simple, and simply just asks our angels to, to pray for us and to help us. So I'll put that one in the, in the show notes as well below. Um, comment on this video, let me know what you liked or what you didn't like. And again, I'd love it if you clicked that subscribe button so you can be notified when, uh, when more content comes out. So that is what I've got on the Holy Angels. And until next time, God bless you.